You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are here with episode two with Dr. Heath Hagee of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Wildlife Refuge System, waterfowl ecologist here in the Southeast region. Heath, welcome back. Thanks, Mike. We are going to resume our discussion about different plants that people are going to encounter in wetlands and what their different values are to waterfowl. If you did not catch episode one uh, related to this little two-part series, I certainly encourage you to go back and listen to that. It should have been released just a few days ago relative to this one, and that will provide you with the background on all of this, why we study plants, why we care about what waterfowl eat and and from which plants they, they find these foods. In that previous episode, Heath broke down general our, all the plants that are out there that we care about or that we would encounter into these six different categories, the aquatics, both emergent and submerged, uh, broadleaves, grasses, sedges, and rushes as one group there, vines, and then trees and shrubs. And then actually there's another one um, that I will be talking about today. It's cultivated crops and their value for waterfowl. On the previous episode, we only got through that introduction and the history of food habits and then uh, through, the aqu- through the aquatics. Uh, there's a lot to talk about with that one. That's an exciting group. 
Uh, so today we're going to pick up with our broadleaf category. Uh, what is that, Heath? When we say broadleaf, and there, what other names would people might know it? Know that group of plants as, and, and what are some examples? Yeah, let, I think maybe folks would find um, find some examples the best. So we think about uh, you know large, literally broadleaf plants um, in, in this category. Things like smartweeds and coffeeweed, and just a variety of different species. Um, you know when most people think about these in their garden, they're just weeds. Um, but <clears throat> uh, oftentimes those are, those are very good duck food. Um, and so, um, you know, that's, that's what we may be managing for. Um, in general, this category has some plants that are very good seed producers um, if they're annual plants, meaning they've got to grow from seed every year. Although many of these species may be perennial, meaning that they last for year after year after year, they, they don't necessarily grow from seed every year, or you know they may, they may be able to have both life forms as well. The annual broadleaf plants tend to, again, produce good numbers of seeds and be fairly desirable. Um, the perennial species, the ones that grow year after year, put more of their effort you know, into the vegetation production. They don't produce the seeds, which are eaten by waterfowl, and so they're not as good as, as some of the others. As far as in, from an energy standpoint, it's really a mixed bag. We have some species that, that are quite good, produce a lot of food, have good energy values. We have some others that are not good. Either they, they really aren't consumed very often by waterfowl or the energy value when they are consumed is is not very good. Cockleburr would fall fall into the category <laughs> of one that is not good and we all hate. And we all and is not consumed <laughs> as, as as far as I know of in any diet studies. And dogs with long hair certainly hate them. That's right. Right. Yeah, there are a lot of different plants, uh, I guess kind of classes of plants that fall into this category that people are gonna know about. Smartweed is one, mm -hmm. you know, that's, and there are a lot of different species mm -hmm. in, in smartweed. We'll get to that here in a second. The first thing that I want to ask you about is the general kind of soil moisture requirement of, of this group of, of, of broad leaves in the aquatics, obviously, as you described previously, they're the ones we think about that have to have their, quote, feet wet mm -hmm. all year long. What about broad leaves? Is that a pretty large gradient in terms of their, their soil moisture requirement? A huge gradient, yep, yep. But but generally we're 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 coming up in the landscape. We're coming toward upland and out of the out of the permanently flooded or semi-permanently flooded area during the growing season. So we often get most of these broadleaf plants at uh, in areas that at some point during the growing season the water the water recedes from either we in a managed impoundment we draw the water off or pump the water off or naturally you know a river in a in a in a, in a floodplain situation the river you know maybe after a spring spring flood recedes and then you get this flush of broadleaf plants that comes in comes in behind them some of these species need really warm uh, soil temperatures and and can do well in very hot weather uh, like cockleburr or like sesbania others you know do better early in the season when the when the soil temperatures are cooler uh, like some of our smartweed species some of the species in this group would fall into the other category that we talk about a lot as uh, moist soil plants That's right? right and so we could have gone we could have taken that approach in this conversation where we would have talked we we could have categorized this as emergent wetlands moist soil wetlands, flooded bottomland hardwoods, right? That would have been mm -hmm. another way that we could have approached this conversation. But I just wanted to mention that to clarify that you know, some of these groups that we've talked, we are going to talk about certainly in this category as 
well as the grasses and sedges to follow, and maybe even some of the others could fall into that, quote, moist soil category, or maybe even into the uh, the emergent wetland category when we talk about some of the perennial smartweeds, right? Absolutely. In, in your average wetland, you, you often have all of these species or representatives from each one of these groups that we've talked about, you know, in your, in your wetland. So in a managed impoundment near the water control structure, you generally have some of those, uh, maybe not SAV, but arrowhead, cattails, you know, you have some of those aquatic species. And as you move away, you sort of move up the gradient to, to where it's drier sooner um, or the you know the, it gets drier overall in the summer then you're moving through your generally sort of through some of your broadleafs and into your you know into your grasses and some of the other species we're going to go through a couple of species here at least species classes uh, maybe I'd just say genuses um, is that the plural or is it general close enough for me <laughs> so uh, and and to give people some specific examples that they would be familiar with we're going to talk about about those. The first one is going to be smartweed, polygonum. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't know how many different species of polygonum. There's at least half a dozen or more that y'all have in that book that mm-hmm. we talked about on the previous episode. Are all smartweed species the same in, no. ter- in terms of their food <laughs> value? Or Yeah, their food value. No, and, and it, it gets more complicated than that, unfortunately. They're not all the same, and they're not all the same for different duck species as well. So every duck species... It, you know, is is physiologically and physically equipped to sort of handle different size food items better or worse than than other ones. Mallards being a large example, green winged teal being you know uh, an example of of a species that can handle very very small seeds. It depends who's the forager and what they're what they're eating on. For instance, um, there is some variation in. You know, for instance, if we pick one species, a, a, a good broadleaf species like Pennsylvania smartweed, what some people call it, pink smartweed, yeah. bright pink, fairly large size, fairly seeds large for right. the within the smartweed family. E- exactly right. Grows in the midsummer. You can see these, uh, lots of lots of bees out over a wetland. Lots of pink flowers. That's generally you know going to be pink smartweed or Pennsylvania smartweed. That's a, a very large seed, very good for something like a mallard, probably not as good for something like a, like a green wing teal or yeah. blue wing teal. Um, they're just not a, as equipped to handle it, but, but a very, but a very good species. So that's going to be roughly a similar. So if you're only feeding it that to a mallard, roughly a similar energy value to something like nodding smartweed or polygonum laptifolium. That's going to, you know, the laptifolium may have a slightly lower TME or energy value, but really the biggest difference comes across the consumer species, so across duck species that are going to consume it. Is there an easy way for people to know whether they're dealing with uh, a species of smartweed that's valuable as a food item or, or is not very valuable? Because aren't there a couple that just aren't, we don't know them to be highly consumed by waterfowl. And maybe there's some that I've encountered in the wetlands that I was out in this past weekend. I mean, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the seed, the quote seed, it actually looks just like remnant of the flower. There's nothing in there. Mm -hmm. It looks like there was no seed production whatsoever. So I guess I'm I'm bad about this. I asked you two questions there. (laughs) One is, uh, is there an easy way for people to know if they're dealing with a Smartweed species that is of value. I'll ask you the second one again here in a minute. As soon as I give this answer, somebody's going to prove me wrong. But in general, I'm going to go back to that annual versus perennial. If in part of your wetland that you go hunt in or you manage, you have the same species every year 
no matter what, pretty much at the same density of smart weed, that's probably a perennial and it's probably not very good for, for waterfowl. If you have what looks like different species and they grow differently and that's a smart weed, I'm not sure what, what's there, but that was something else last year. That's probably one of the one of the better ones. That means that's that means you've got you know annual plants are coming up and they're senescing and then something may come in next year. So species like Pennsylvania smartweed and nodding smartweed, those are two two of my favorites. Two of the the ones that we have the information on to say these are really good species for a wide variety of of waterfowl as far as energy and it's a good broadleaf plant meaning there's a lot of plant material there. So it's going to be good invertebrate production. Um, good for invertebrate production as well in those wetlands in the in the winter and in the spring. I don't like the direction that answer took relative to the way I'm thinking about the wetland that I was in this past weekend and what that no. <laughs> what I ha- what what's in that wetland because it is it is a it's not a monoculture across the board but it's dense mm-hmm. smart weed. Now, I guess on the good side of things, there's a lot of vegetation there. There's a lot of structure, which gets to the invertebrate mm-hmm. component of it. But talk about the type of smartweed that I'm likely, that I likely have there. Probably swamp smartweed or there are, I'm going to, I'm going to say water smartweed. There is a water smartweed, but there are several different species that we lump together that grow very, grow, grow very similarly. Um, so the swamp, and actually there are a couple of different species that we throw together to represent swamp smartweed. Anyway, getting out of the technical details there, the swamp smartweed and the water smartweed, they grow in very wet conditions. So they're going to be, again, like down by your water control structure, in the borrowed ditches, um, along uh, pond shorelines, lake shorelines that have water on them throughout at least half their growing season or all of the growing season before that water comes back yeah. down in areas where you generally don't see a lot of disturbance, mechanical disturbance. Yeah. So they they if you disturb it over and over again, they generally have a tough time competing with those annual species. So that's probably, uh, so I'm probably describing where you're hunting that's, there, there that's for, right. <laughs> for the listeners. Yes, <laughs> but probably really good from a wood duck duckling habitat standpoint, right? A lot a lot of cover there. So it's probably got some cover, probably similar to button bush or something else. Yeah. Lots of cover there. Um, and so you're, and so yeah, probably good for, for ducklings, but, but not much seed there. And you know, that's again, going back to this perennial thing, the, the perennial species, they don't have to produce much seed. So they're not investing. So those plants are not investing much in the seed production, which is why that when I pick up what looks to be seeds or the, uh, the, the, casing in which the seed would be. It's flat. There's nothing there. I can feel nothing there. They probably invested all their energy in their root system or their vegetation and rhizomes or however they spread uh, vertically, right? That's correct. Yeah. Swamp smartweed does produce some seed, but very, very little. And it does it over a very long time frame. And so I'm sure there's a botanical term for this that I don't actually know. Um, But the seed drops out of that that seed head, out of the panicle over a month or two months or three months. It's not like some of our other annual species where, boom, they grow, they've got a full seed head, and then they fall over, where at some point you can go out there and see the full seed head. Swamp smartweed always has this sort of white flower and always looks a bit sick. I don't know, like the seed head always looks half-formed because it is. It's going to flower throughout the season. Yeah. All right, let's move on to a different group of species here, or maybe just a, a, yeah, I guess a group of species. I think there's probably several different types, and it's People are probably going to have a love-hate relationship with it. Uh, beggar ticks. Bidens is the <laughs> genus associated with this one. Talk about that. The stick tights. There's probably all sorts of mm-hmm. different names to it, right? And so talk about that one. Probably people just 
just curse at this plant more than more than many others. <laughs> Avoid right? hunting in that location. That, that, you know, right? That's right. Uh, it, beautiful flower, bright yellow flower during late July uh, into August. Actually, really, really pretty plant. But if you hunt in it, you've gotten that stuck, especially if you were to take a fleece jacket in there, Ooh, yeah. um, you're throwing that fleece away yeah. at the end of the day. You know, you're never getting all of those uh, all of those seeds out of there. That seed is OK. It has it has some value, some nutritional value, um, but it's not great. Um, so I don't is mind. It seeing, the, is it the one that I'm sorry? Oh, is it the one that's high in protein or is it high in fat? It, 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 it has it has both, um, but it has a pretty moderate TME value or okay. energy value. And so I, I certainly don't mind seeing some Bidens in a wetland, especially because it will often grow later than many of the other species. And so after you've after we've had better species come on and flower and then fall over or they're still standing there to have some Bidens come up, that's great. But a sea of yellow flowers in August, that's going to be a tough place to hunt in. And there are better food species for waterfowl. What about uh, pigweed? Is another one. It has like really small mm-hmm. species, uh, small seeds. Is there? Are there any other names that people would know that one by? If you're a farmer, Palmer amaranth is one of the. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> is one of the uh, is one of the pigweed species. There are also a bunch of species that we lump into into pigweed into that genus. It's a pretty decent waterfowl food, actually. Um, the thing is, you don't. I won't say often, but it's not one that commonly find in well-managed moist soil wetlands. It's, you know, generally a drier in drier areas. And so you'll, you'll often see waterfowl encounter that when they're, you know, getting into flooded farm fields or fallow farm fields or in a ditch or something where they can, where they can get at that. But if they can find pigweed, some of the the TME studies, the energy studies that have been done with it is it has a a very high TME value. It's a little bitty seed, um, but a very high TME value. And Boy, those those plants produce a lot of seeds. Pretty good for teal, right? Don't we don't we find what, it often in teal? That's what we think. I don't know what the what the diet literature says for teal, but certainly they eat some, they eat a lot of seeds that size, and so yeah. I would expect that. Okay, let's talk about a couple of species that probably don't have much foraging value for waterfowl. Uh, coffee weed and then cinnabine or sickle pod. Sickle I mean, pod. Yeah. So kind of mm-hmm. help me out with those. What would how would people recognize those? Are they good for anything from when it comes to a waterfowl standpoint? <laughs> Not very much, we don't think, uh, from a from a food standpoint. So coffee weed or coffee bean, you know, that that is a species that in a moist soil wetland or really in any low area can grow eight, 10, 12 foot tall even. Um, it's it's an annual plant. It produces uh, big pods. Actually, it looks like a it looks like a bean, about you know, half the size of a, a pea or so uh, for the big ones. And it, they're prolific seed producers, but they really haven't occurred in many of the diet studies. I, I was actually talking to uh, uh, Jacob Bethel, who's completing his master's degree at University of Arkansas at Monticello with Doug, Doug Osborne, and he's just wrapping up a diet study. And he let me know that it had occurred in his preliminary analysis in about 3% of the mallards Mm. that he had collected. So yes, it occurs. Sometimes they eat it, but for as much coffee weed as is on the landscape, which is everywhere, um, they're certainly not consuming it much. Um, We have another project right now where we're force feeding it to ducks and letting, we're going to figure out how much energy is in there. I don't know how that's going to go, but it doesn't seem like they're, they're eating it again for as much, as much coffee weed is out on the landscape um, in moist soil wetlands. It doesn't seem like they're picking it up much. 
when we look through the literature, there are also some of these species like uh, coffee weed that people surmise may be used as an alternative source of grit more so <laughs> than actual food, right? That, that's that's kind of been hypothesized. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we really test that, but that is what some people think. Some of these really hard seeds may actually serve more as grit than they do as foraging value, right? That's right. There's actually the hard seed for grit hypothesis out there uh, that, that a couple of people has, had, have tested. To my knowledge, I don't, I don't think anybody has shown great support for that because, you know, grit doesn't seem to be a limiting factor, right? There's, yeah. there's, there's grit everywhere. When we say grit, very, very small uh, rocks and stones and things, very, very, very small that, that the birds will ingest and they'll get stuck in the gizzard and that helps grind up the, the hard seeds. That's um, why you see doves or other, other birds out there on the, um, out there on the road, on a gravel road or something, pecking, and people may be thinking, what in the world is a bird doing eating rocks? Well, they, it aids in their digestion in their, in their gizzard. That, that's right. Since they don't have teeth, they need something else, and that's a gizzard. Well, what about like thermal cover? Uh, obviously, hunters, if there's a little bit of that in a wetland, people, some hunters may use that as, as cover mm-hmm. for us. What about ducks? Do they, does it provide thermal co- cover or escape cover? I suspect that it does, um, and that's just a lot of time I've spent wandering around in in moist soil wetlands all across the Mississippi Valley. It it certainly is a windbreak if you if you get in there, um, and most hunters probably who have hunted in a moist soil wetland with coffee bean will will tell you the same thing. Um, so I, I do think birds get in there for the the cover aspect of it. It's another one to me like Biden's. I don't. I don't get super nervous if there's a little bit of it. Um, I get super nervous if there's a lot of it because it can shade out other desirable species. And so it, a, a little bit goes a long way. In moderation, it's fine, but but I certainly don't like to see tons of it out in a wetland. Let's move on to the grasses. This mm-hmm. is a group that is very important from a food standpoint. It's going to include, well, you tell us, what all is in the, in the grasses category as we're talking about it here? Probably what everyone, everyone is thinking. Um, just about anything you know, any of the grasses that are going to grow in your yard or you've seen in the ditch um, are going to occur in in managed and unmanaged uh, wetlands. This is by far the most important vegetation type that we're talking about today uh, as far as food for the, a variety of different waterfowl species. Basically, all forms of waterfowl or almost all forms of waterfowl, you know, consume grass seeds. Um, some of the, you know, some of the common ones that people think about are barnyard grass or, or, or millets. There's Walter's millet and, and several other and several other species of, of millets, but barnyard grass is one of the most common. There are a variety of different panic grasses, like fall panicum, uh, red top panicum, a variety of those. Those are all good foods. Um, and then there are some undesirables that we don't think have really any value, like Johnson grass. We don't like to see that. That's one that you'll see on ditch banks, uh, roadsides. Um, we don't think that one has much, you know, much value. There's a lot of vegetation material there, not a lot of, not a lot of seed there. So we don't like to see that one. That Johnson grass has the growth form similar to one of the panic grasses that you're talking about. Long stem, mm-hmm. you know, with the rather wispy top, uh, the, the inflorescence where the seeds are. But Johnson grass tends to be more robust taller, uh, more vegetation relative to the amount of seed, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's going to grow in drier areas. You know, anytime that you've got large, large stands of Johnson grass in your moist soil wetland, you probably need to modify your hydrology regime, right? It's it's too dry generally in a, uh, in a moist soil wetland if you're getting things like Johnson grass growing. In terms of people's ability to identify 
these these beneficial plants. I described it in a previous interview that I had maybe a couple of years ago where I was just, I, I said something to the effect of if you're walking across, if you're walking through a wetland, if you're walking across a field, let's say before it's inundated, and let's say it's early in the morning and there's dew on the ground. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside around and you're walking through there in the fall and then you look down on your boots and it's covered with all these really small seeds. Mm-hmm. Chances are, chances are, not a guarantee, but chances are a good percentage of those is going to fall into this grass category, mm-hmm. right? There would be some some value there. Absolutely. What about the consistency of the food value across all the different species in this grass category? What do we know there? Very good. Um, so millet is one of our, uh, again, for the for big uh, species like Canada geese and mallards, those, those sorts of things which are going to consume that. It's a very high TME value or, again, energy value relative to some of the other species. So we've, we've had several TME studies. Uh, it has a value up around two, uh, two kilocalories per gram if you want the technical information there, whereas some of the other species will be down around one. And so millet um, and some of the panic grasses have very high TME values relative to the other other grass species, maybe more importantly, much higher than many of our broadleaf species. So many of the, like we talked about smartweed just a minute ago, their their energy values are going to be about one kilocalorie per gram, one and a half kilocalories per gram, whereas uh, millet and some of the other grasses is going to be well above two kilocalories per gram. So they're not only the most common out there, but also generally higher energy value, uh, the annual species anyway, higher energy value than the broadleaf species. Are there any of these grass species that are going to have a higher concentration of protein or fat than than others how much variation is there there actually is um, there actually is some variation there um, it's it's more pronounced when you go to broadleaf species 
and then into things like the uh, the SAV um, protein content comes up in the in the leafy material. Things like green browse and SAV, it's going to be much higher than it is in the average seed, where it's down around ten percent, maybe twenty percent in those leafy species, give or take. In the ag seeds, I know we're going to go there, but in the ag seeds, that that's where you get a ton of variation in the amount of protein that's that's available there. You know, for something super high in protein like soybeans versus something like corn, where it's a bit lower. Yeah, but yes, there there is quite a bit of variation and not only in just the protein levels, fat levels, the fiber levels and all of that works together to to determine how digestible that food is and ultimately what energy we uh, duck can wring out of that food. One of the interesting observations that we made when we we're talking about here about Canada geese and other ducks eating the seeds off of these grasses. And you mentioned that pretty much anything, any grass that's in your yard is going to also be in a wetland. When we first moved here a couple of years ago, we have a, a piece of our side yard that previous owners had kept mowed. And we pretty quickly said, you know, we're not going to, mm-hmm. we're not going to mow that uh, as often. Uh, actually, we don't mow it very much at all. But that first fall, as it transitioned from a sort of mode, maybe more manicured portion of the of the yard to uh, well to an unmowed portion, the first thing that happened was those grass species matured, headed out with the, with their seeds, and I'm not sure it was uh, I don't know if it was crabgrass or Bermuda grass. I'm not sure exactly what species it was, but it attracted the Canada geese <laughs> quickly. Mm-hmm. A lot of our neighbors were saying, we've never seen this many Canada geese flocking to this yard. And they're like, it must be because you work for Ducks Unlimited. <laughs> and I said, no, it's actually because we didn't mow the side yard and it began to produce these seeds. And it was pretty fascinating to watch the Canada geese come in and watch their foraging behavior because they were feeding on these plants before the seeds dropped. They would grab the seed head, strip the seeds <laughs> with their bill, and that was, I, I'd never really seen that up close as often as I did there, but that was the repeated method of foraging that they applied across that entire front, well, side yard and mm-hmm. turned into our front yard as well. And then I've also observed songbirds of various types, sparrows of all sorts, will do the same thing, be on the ground, hop up and jump, uh, hop up and grab the seed head, pull it down and just kind of pick the seeds directly off of the stem. Absolutely. And that, that's a great example. I know we're into your yard, right? Not not necessarily <laughs> into a wetland, but that's a great example of the the annual versus perennial. You know, the, the, the repeated mowing, that's going to favor the perennial species. But when you back that off, that's going to facilitate the annual species, let them better compete. And so, you know, there come the Canada geese. Perfect example of that. And this is going to provide a good segue to our sedges and rushes. That same part of the yard is one that we're now trying to do, trying to establish some some sort of native, semi-native prairie grasses. And so part of that on our, on our part is to do some tilling. We're mm-hmm. just sort of doing some, some various experimentations out there. And after tilling portion of that yard earlier this year, I looked out there a few months ago and it was chock-a-block full with chufa, mm-hmm. with nutsedge. And and so I, of course, got excited, somewhat sandy soils out there. And I, I went out and pulled it up and sure enough, there's all sorts of tubers growing. And so it's that favoring that succession, that disturbance mm-hmm. that favored that annual species. And if I could only hold water on that piece <laughs> of property, it would be it'd be really exciting, but it's sandy soils and it can't really do it. Plus it's part of a pipeline. They don't like that either. Probably so. not. 
<laughs> so let's move on to sedges and rushes. Talk about those, and you can even reference the particular species that I was talking about. There. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, you know, and I'll call them. A, I'll call them a close cousin of the grasses. I'm not sure that's taxonomically uh, accurate, but from a management standpoint, you know, grow under similar uh, moisture regimes. Um, many of these are also annual uh, annual species. Um, you mentioned uh, chufa or yellow nut sedge. It's a very good one. Um, sometimes it produces tubers. Sometimes it produces seeds. Sometimes it'll do a little bit of both. Um, yep. And it's very difficult to predict when that is going to happen. There's there's some thoughts on moisture regime and different times of the year and disturbance and a few other things. And um, I'm not very good at predicting when I'm going to see big tuber production. I, I think it's extremely complicated. I think soil pH probably plays mm-hmm. in and, and other soil nutrients matter a lot. And if you think about it from a, from the plant standpoint, you know, they've, you know, that, that plant, if you, I hate to say that, you know, they're thinking, right, that's personification a little yeah. bit, but that plant, you know, physiologically, you know, can, can throw resources into a tuber, into what's essentially a potato-like structure, or it can put them into vegetative production to try to hang on to the next year if it's a, if it's a perennial species, or it can produce seeds. And so you've got, you know, you've got at any one time all these individual plants going different directions and doing different strategies. And so sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll get into a wetland and I'll see lots of tubers, you know, dig up, a, get, a, get in a patch of chufa, lots of tubers there. Other times under what seems to be similar circumstances, I see almost none. So I have no idea how to grow tubers unless you, you know, order them and plant them from the, you know, maybe the, the Turkey Federation or something like that. Am I correct that they tend to favor more a bit more well-drained soils, or do you even is that even true? You know, I, I don't know that 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 certainly could be true, but um, but yeah, I, I've about given up my ability to predict when I can walk up to a chufa plant, dig it up. You can't just pull it up because you'll often pull yeah. off the tubers. You've got to kind of dig up the plant yeah. and whether or not that that is going to have uh, uh, big tubers on it or or whether it's not. I I don't know. And did you know that you can actually buy those and eat them? I, I came across them somewhere not too long ago and bought a bought a pack and of course they're really hard really mm-hmm. hard tubers you know about the size of the of a uh, the eraser on a pen number mm-hmm. two pencil and they're dehydrated and uh, if you're curious and want to go look into that you can uh, you could search for nut sedge or cyparis esculentis it's actually the act it was the the exact species that we are most familiar with that you could actually buy and eat, Cyperus esculentus, C-Y-P-E-R-U-S, esculentus. I'm not going to spell the last one. <laughs> I, I, I think I saw a recipe about a year ago for roasted tubers. Uh, I don't know if that's what that's what you saw. That may have been. A, that actually probably was it. Probably not dehydrated, but roasted. I, I did not try them. I, they were that, good. No, oh, you oh, tried yeah. them? Oh, I bought oh, them. I bought wow. a bag and brought them in and shared them, and they were nutty. Tasty. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like we need to do a harvest in your side yard is what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, I thought about it. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, just, just one more thing on the on the, on the the sedges. Um, I like to see those in a wetland. They, they certainly have they have value, um, especially some of the other ones like red root flat sedge. That's one we haven't talked about, but red root can have a – it's not one seed head, but it's sort of a collection of seed heads as big as a dinner plate. If the conditions are really right, it's really moist into the summer, but you also get really warm temperatures and that sort temperature comes up, you can get really, really crazy high seed production. Now, almost microscopic seeds, they're very small, but 
but things like green wing teal absolutely love them and they you know they won't just pick up individual seeds they'll sometimes these will float on top of the water so you'll see ducks sort of skimming the top of the water or these these seeds will blow to one side of the wetland and sort of form a windrow or form a, a row on a on a shoreline and the ducks will go will go get them there where they can really their foraging is much more efficient than these little bitty seeds having to get them individually. There are also some species in this group that are very problematic, right? I think I'm thinking of deep-rooted sedge. I don't know how much of a problem that is up here, but I seem to recall it being a, a bit of an issue along the Gulf Coast. I'm not familiar with that one. Um, and I, I can't recall if it's an invasive, uh, or I'm sorry, I can't remember if it's an exotic. It, it definitely is invasive in under the right conditions uh and it is it was becoming a pretty significant problem in certain areas down there deep-rooted sedge interesting i don't think it had a high seed production and it may be out competing some of the natives i could be getting some of that wrong but i, I know there were some some of those sedges that were at least one that was a uh, of concern mm, that's interesting there's another one uh red root or uh, uh, sorry rice field flat sedge and that's one we've got a um, you see it often in rice fields especially the second year or for where if it's fallowed or something like that you see a lot of uh, rice field flat sedge um, and that's one we're doing a TME analysis on or an energy analysis on right now to see what what that occurs um, but that one with chufa and with a uh, uh, red root flat sedge those are some of the most common ones that we see and you know all pretty desirable species again I don't want to see a monoculture of those in a wetland because we can do better energetically, but some mixed in, especially in the low low spots or late in the season when you've got, after you've done a soil manipulation or a chemical treatment or something, you can actually get a, a good crop of sedges in a really short time period. They have really short growing seasons, 30 to 45 days oftentimes to produce seeds or tubers. And so they could grow really quickly. And so sometimes after, you know, you've, you've, lost a crop or you've you've not had what you want or you just had to do some management in a unit, um, you can get a really nice crop of sedges at the end of the growing season. I mentioned how there are certain species in this group that are problematic. That is true in each of these different classes 100%. that we're talking about. I'm trying to recall the particular grass that the that's a problem up in the Midwest and I can't, it's, it's not coming to me right now, but I, I saw it all over the place whenever I was up there a few, a few weeks back. Uh, it's It looks, I mean, it's a grass. You would think it do you think it might produce, um, you know, good seeds? But it's just, it's similar to what we were talking about with the perennial smartweed where it's so much vegetation and very little seed production. I'm embarrassed. I can't think of it. I'm, I'm thinking me, me I'm thinking of the rainwater basin and it's everywhere, but I cannot, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot bring it to mind. Maybe. It, it'll come to us here before we get to the end <laughs> of this. So, so uh, let's move on here to the next category. We could spend additional time talking about different species in each of these groups. You know, we didn't talk about teal love grass or mm-hmm. signal grass when we were in the grasses. There's a whole host of things we could talk about. Trees and shrubs, and then we'll get to cultivated crops after that. Trees and shrubs, obviously the oak species are Mm going to be top of the list here. Uh, So we'll get to those here in a minute. Uh, What about, you know, the incidental consumption, or maybe, I don't know if it'd be incidental, it seems like it'd have to be deliberate, pecans. And they're not not a wetland species, Mm -hmm. but it seems like I've, I've recall maybe some instances of ducks maybe eating some pecans or something like that. I can imagine they would. Uh, but then also, what about species uh, in the elms and ash that produce a lot of these little samaras, a lot of these mm-hmm. little seeds? What do we know there? Yeah, so so as you said, oaks, 
number one. They're 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 high high TME value or high energy value when you're in an oak bottom and you know it's it's their year, right? It's it's they it, they're really producing. It can be a lot of food in a small area, or you get under a grove of trees and they're all producing in one year. You can have a lot of food, and again, a high TME value. So we talked about some of the grasses and sedges having a TME value of one to two, or maybe up to two and a half for some of the grasses. Most of the oak species, or the the commonly consumed oak species, have a TME value that's up closer to three kilocalories per gram. So it's a very good food source when a when a duck can find that, especially the smaller species like uh, willow oaks and cherry bark and a few and a few of those species that are pin that are very good. We know that some of the some of other species you mentioned ash and maple that produce the Samaras that those are consumed. They're not very common in diet studies, but anecdotally you see them or you'll uh, you know a, a diet study I, I saw one recently and overall the the consumption was I think it was um, maybe red maple or something was very low but a couple of individuals had had just were packed full of it yeah. so I don't I, you know I, I'm not sure what to think about that certainly if you've ever seen when those come off and they fall into a wetland they're super abundant for some yeah. a period of a few weeks or a month or so and so I think a hungry mallard at some point will eat just about just about anything TME wise I, I don't know that we have much information on their energy value but certainly um, a hungry duck will consume them. One of the things that we talked about with Luke Naylor on a recent episode where we were discussing some of the new management regimes for Arkansas green tree reservoirs was the differential value of of oak species, the Mm -hmm. acorns from different oak species. And you began to reference this, but willow oak, water oak, pin oak, nut all oak, Mm -hmm. I think is also another one. Mm -hmm. But then some of the other species, bur oak, uh, maybe some of the larger white oaks are not as valuable, right? And how did we talk a little about how we learned this and how we figured this out? Uh, We talked about it on the previous episode of of pref in the context of preference, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out if birds are preferring or selecting. And we referenced a particular controlled experiment. So talk about this. What did, how did we learn that there are certain oak species whose acorns are preferred? Mm-hmm. It's a good it, it's a good question. It's a bit of a process like it is. So first of all, we've got to do diet studies that are um, that are proper diet studies. We see, hey, they are they're selecting, they're eating these more than what's available. And then to take it further, what we can do is we can really look at preference. So we can bring that study indoors and use captive mallards, captive wood ducks, as was the case in one of this one of these studies that came out of uh, Mississippi State under under Rick Kaminsky a couple decades ago, I believe, where they had ducks in pens. I believe they were wood ducks wood ducks in pins and they fed them individual offerings of each one of these species and then even offerings where all the the acorn species were mixed and lo and behold uh, uh, willow oak was one that that the birds tended to consume more often than it was than it was provided to them in that controlled controlled environment and so they really did select and and even prefer those those willow oak although all of uh, all of the species that they provided them were really, really good uh, TME value. So I think one of the things that they concluded was um, the the physical presence of those, or phys- sorry, presence, physical characteristics of those willow oak being a very small uh, acorn um, that are pr- or having very small acorns that probably made it a you know a a species 
you know, worthy of preference there. I think the other part of that was it was thin-shelled. All of That's those right. species that they identified as being preferred were, were small and thin-shelled, so the ratio of meat to shell was really high. That's in, exactly in right. Contra- and also it's easy to... I guess it was the right size for a uh, for a wood duck mm-hmm. in that case, or a mallard as well, to be able to grasp and manipulate with their bill and actually even consume. Right. That's right. And they looked at a variety of other things, as I recall. They looked at tannins. They looked at other nutrients. A variety of things. I don't recall all of those all of those things. But you're exactly right. It's often not as simple as sometimes we we make it out to be. It's it's a it's a fairly complex. Uh, a complex decision process that a duck will go through. Any other trees or shrubs that are notable food producers? And we can talk about button willow, button bush mm-hmm. as a fantastic plant for cover, mm-hmm. uh, escape cover, thermal cover in some instances. Uh, any other plants or any other trees that are notable as a uh, as a food value? I was going to bring that one up. Uh, button bush uh, or buckthorn or buckbrush or, you know, name <laughs> the, the 10,000 hunter names that that it has. But, but button bush is, is, is a good one. It produces the, these little balls that, that shatter into seeds and those are consumed by ducks. We don't think there's a ton of energy there. Certainly not given, you know, the, you know, the, the area taken up by, you know, by an yeah. individual bush. There's certainly not a lot of food there, um, but they certainly are consumed, especially by, by wood ducks. But no, not off the top of my head. Uh, you know, the, the, the oak trees and then some of the other species, maple and ash are, uh, are certainly, certainly what I think what you think about as the major food producers in a, you know, in a forested wetland. Yeah, there really aren't many other mast producing tree species out there. Uh, Cypress, uh, tupelo, there's not a whole lot from those in terms of foraging value, right? Not a lot. You, you get a little bit of consumption by wood ducks occasionally where they can find it, but uh, not, not huge amounts of energy as far as we know. Let's move on to the final category here. Uh, in the book, I will say you have a category related to vines. There's not really anything in there that's going to be of, of, of note, right? Like morning glory and things of that nature, but not from a food value. I mean, we can always talk about the vegetation structure and supporting invertebrate bases, things of that nature, but there's not a whole lot that really extends to waterfowl values there, is it? No, I mean, a, you know, a hungry duck in the spring will probably eat about anything that they can that they can find. Um, but from a from a, a, food, a foraging standpoint and an energy standpoint, none of the vine species are really desirable. They're not something we manage for. In fact, oftentimes they're things we manage against. Yeah. And so uh, outside of just identifying them and knowing what you have um, and how to control it, um, I, I certainly don't put any emphasis on those. Last group is cultivated crops. That's going to be rice, corn, soybeans, milo or sorghum, however you refer to it. What else? Uh, buckwheat is another mm-hmm. one. Buckwheat, millet. Well, I usually throw uh, Japanese, Jap- Japanese millet, millet or golden in here, millet okay. in this. Mm-hmm. What else? I mean, there's a host of, there's probably a host of Egyptian weed. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing some from some of the earlier publications, what you can, uh, plantings for waterfowl management type thing. There's a number of those, right? People get super creative. You know, I've, I've seen some literature on uh, duck use of tomato, you know, tomato farms and other <laughs> and other things. But I, I think you covered the the big ones. I, I would say, um, you know, rice and corn are, are probably the big ones. People listening to this, if 
are probably going to be familiar with the value of those, uh, the, the situations in which we find those, like the why rice is so valuable to waterfowl. We've talked about that a lot. A lot of folks are going to be familiar with corn, both uh, field feeding and dry situations, as well as the flooding of harvested corn or flooding of unharvested corn. Talk about, uh, I guess, Heath, and I, I suppose you've already alluded to this, the main nutritional component that that ducks are getting from these cultivated crops. I, actually, I guess there's some variation here. So, but it's mostly energy, right? So talk about that across this different list of species. Uh, that's correct. And, and I won't say that I'm necessarily advocating for crops when I say this, but but I do want I do want to be emphatic here and say that crops are the biggest bang for your buck. Or that's the, why they're called hot crops. That's right. Hot, hot, hot foods. That's it's right. A, it's a bit of a controversy there, right? Hot cropping. <laughs> that's, that's right. And, and again, I am not advocating <laughs> necessarily one way or the other, but um, but I will say that that they they have an amazing amount of energy packed into a small area. And that's, that is just a fact. And so in areas, you know, with, with agencies where we have waterfowl objectives, we've got to meet a certain amount, get a certain amount of food on the ground. You know, they are one of our key tools in, in doing that. Just just as an illustration, I'll, I'll talk about energy first. You know, we, we talked about broadleaf plants having energy values of around one, one and a half kilocalories per gram. And then we talked about some of our grasses, maybe two, two and a half kilocalories per gram. Some of the agricultural crops have three and a half to four kilocalories per gram. So you're talking about per gram of seed, you know, three times or four times more energy than some of the other moist soil seed. And again, we're not talking about huge amounts of area. This is per gram of seed. Um, so super dense energy. And there's often sometimes a, a myth out there too, that, you know, there's, you know, there's no protein in these, in these plants. That That's actually not true. There's quite a bit of protein in some of the crops. There's more in others like soybeans, although some of it's bound up and not available to waterfowl, but, but some of the crops have quite a bit of protein, quite a bit of fat, quite a bit of overall energy that a bird can get out of those. You know, others have, have a little bit, um, but you do get a lot of the nutrients out of, out of a crop, especially something like corn. Corn, it's, there's a reason why we as humans eat a lot of corn. It's in a lot of our products. The same thing is true for, for a duck. It is a nutritious, um, a nutritious crop. Heath, that's a great point uh, about there actually being some other nutritional values to some of these uh, cultivated crops. I want to jump to soybeans here and talk about it. You referenced how a lot of that protein is bound up. What's what's the science behind that? Do you how much do you know in terms of like how is it bound up? Why can't they use utilize that protein? We're going to need an, an animal physiologist okay. or someone in here, I think, to do a good job with that. So. I'm going to be very dangerous for just a second, and I'll, I'll admit that. Um, but as I recall, there's some inhibitors, a trypsin inhibitor, I think. And so some of the amino acids can't be broken down from soybeans and some of the other crops. And so there's less of it actually available digestively to a duck. Usually what I say is soybeans are great food for ducks as long as you cook them first, mm. just like just like with us. Of course, we can't go out and cook soybeans for, for ducks, nor would we want to. And so that's one of the problems is that they they simply can't digest all of that 
uh, all of that material that's available. They can't break down those those proteins un- unless they're unless they're heated, just just like us. And so that's why um, I don't prefer soybeans as a you know as a managed crop. Um, it goes beyond the just the just the digestibility though. Soybeans um, when they get wet, of course, get soft. They decompose very very quickly. You can lose most of a soybean crop in under thirty days after it's after it's gotten wet. And so once you've obviously flood those in a managed wetland for ducks, they're gone very, very quickly. They can also swell. You can get some impaction issues with swelling of soybeans uh, in a you know in a duck after it uh, after it consumes them. I'm not certain how big of a population effect that is, but it can certainly happen. And so I'm not the biggest fan of soybeans, but if a duck consumes them, they can certainly get some nutrients out of them. Yeah, and contrast that with rice and corn, which actually do resist decomposition a fair bit longer than soybeans, right? Very well, yeah. Rice is rice is very good. I don't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but you can go, you know, more than 90 days with rice and not lose most of your most of your crop after it after it hits water, especially if it's, you know, if it's still in the husk. So rice is a very good crop to leave for for waterfowl. Corn is also very good, but that's often because the the corn kernels remain above the water line. And so once once if once the corn kernels are exposed to water, they're also going to decompose fairly fast. You get a lot of decomposition, but because the, you know, the corn will often remain standing above the water line, but where a duck or a goose can get to that, can knock, you know, can knock it off the cob. Um, it's actually very good, very good food. And it lasts a long time for, for waterfowl. Are there any other cultivated crops that we need to talk about here? Well, sorghum. Sorghum, what, what Milo. We, yeah, mm-hmm. let's do that one because I have some people talk to me about that or ask me questions about it every now and then. Is it valuable? How does it hold up to flooding? Do waterfowl like it? What do we know in that regard? We don't know a ton. Uh, for you know, Scientifically, we don't know a ton. A lot of anecdotal information about, about Milo. I will say... You know, to answer your question, how does it hold up? It holds up great throughout, you know, throughout the winter period. In fact, that's one of my hesitations about Milo is that, you know, if you put, if you've got a a six foot tall or let's just say a five foot tall stand of Milo and you put a foot of water on it, it will stand all winter. And, you know, I feel like through the next growing season, um, it's, it's a, it's has a really robust stock and can grow really thickly. And so I, I've had the impression that maybe sometimes ducks have a hard time sort of getting into it and accessing it. That said, when they get into it, they is in some areas, they, they will, they will certainly consume the seeds. It produces a lot of seed. I, I want to say that it produces about um, 15 to 20,000 energy days per acre. So that's, that's very good. I know we're into some some jargon there, but, you know, relative to moist soil that might produce 2000 energy days. So it produces a lot of food in a small area. Corn, you know, double that 30 to 40,000 energy days per acre. And so that's sort of how it shakes up against those other crops. Heath, you and I are clearly plant and habitat and waterfowl geeks. (laughs) We, We, across these two episodes, we have been talking for about I don't know, an hour and a half. And I feel like I've only scratched the surface of the questions that I want to ask you. I want to ask you about habitat management and trade-offs for doing natural uh, management for these natural grasses and sedges and other plants that we've talked about versus the cultivated crops. But we don't have time for that. We will. Uh, we do have access to you somewhat locally here, so we will have you back sometime in the future to talk about habitat management related to some of these uh, species. Which have we left anything out? Are there any 
anything concluding remarks that you want to uh, that that you want to provide? I, I guess I will say that conversation that I talked about the habitat management and how we incorporate all these different foods into our sort of holistic management is the logical next step for this, right? It's why these are it's why this discussion is important as we started out with no needing if we're going to do good habitat management, we need to know what the birds value, what they use and and so forth. And so that's been the nature of this conversation. Anything related to that that we need to need to close out with here? I think we've covered it. I, I think I'll, I'll just say, you know, we've talked about a whole bunch of different types of vegetation, right? Or vegetation communities. When we're managing for waterfowl, I'll say again, what we really want to see is a lot of annual plants, a lot of annual grasses and sedges, some annual broadleaf plants are great because they provide some diversity in food resources, some diversity in habitat for habitat resources for, in, for insects like bees. What we really don't want to see are a lot of perennial species. We like the annual species, um, grasses, of some of the broadleaf species that produce a lot of food for, for waterfowl. Good deal. Uh, Heath, this has been a load of information, really exciting. It was good for me to, I enjoyed it, could get to think about some of these plants and kind of mentally uh, revisit some of the, some of the things that I learned during my graduate and undergraduate years. And, uh, and yeah, it, it gives me additional things to think about whenever I'm out there in the marsh again later on. We'll certainly have you back sometime in the future to continue these discussions, but we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us again, Heath. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode. I think he's probably a four-time guest now. He's continuing to climb the ladder. Dr. Heath Hagee with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service National Wildlife Refuge System in the Southeast region. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the wonderful job he does with these podcasts, editing them and getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Are you okay with that, Chris? Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our long-time partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here.
We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside.